If you go ahead and open them up to Isaiah 46, uh, they'll also be the verses will be up on the screen. We're going to start this morning by reading uh, the whole the whole chapter, all all 13 verses of Isaiah 46. Bell bows down, Nebo stoops. Their idols are on beasts and livestock. These things you carry are born as burdens on weary beasts. They stoop, they bow down together. They cannot save the burden, but themselves go into captivity. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel, who have been born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb. Even to your old age I am he, and to gray hairs I will carry you. I have made, and I will bear. I will carry and will save. To whom will you liken me and make me equal, and compare me that we may be alike? Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh out silver in the scales hire a goldsmith, and he makes it into a god. Then they fall down and worship. They lift it to their shoulders. They carry it. They set it in its place, and it stands there. It cannot move from its place. If one cries to it, it does not answer or save him from his trouble. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God, there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. Listen to me, you stubborn of heart, you who are far from righteousness. I bring near my righteousness. It is not far off, and my salvation will not delay. I will put salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. That that you use it to make yourself known to us. That you use it to, to reveal more of who we are to ourselves. That you... Use Isaiah to teach us more about the difference between yourself and and false gods. Um, I pray today that as we look again at Isaiah, that um, you would use this chapter, these these 13 verses, to increase our affection for who you are, to increase our appreciation and our understanding of who you are and what you've done for us in Christ. Pray that we would see the, the stark contrast that exists between you and false gods and that there can be no substitute for you. Jesus, we thank you for your sacrifice on our behalf. That's in your name we pray. Amen. So the first time I read this chapter, like in, in preparation for this sermon, I thought, Come on, Isaiah. (laughs) I thought we were past this, right? We've been over the idol thing again and again and again. And then like last week, Daniel got to talk about a new thing. He got to talk about Cyrus. And I thought, well, in the next chapter, there's going to be another new thing. But no, Isaiah goes right back to the difference between God and idols. Uh, But the good thing about Isaiah is that he doesn't just repeat himself again and again and again and again to repeat himself again and again and again. He always does that. There's repetition, and then God, because he's inspiring him to write this, advances the information that he's, he's speaking a little bit further. And so he gives us some of what we already know, right? God is good. 
Idols are bad. Uh, God can declare the, the, the things not yet to come. Idols can. He repeats that, but then he also takes it a step further and teaches us something new about the difference between God and idols. And I think in this passage, we get the most significant difference between the one true God and all false gods. And so what we're going to see is, is in this passage, there's, there's three commands. There's listen, remember, and listen. So it breaks down into a few sections where he's calling the people to listen to what he's going to say, to remember something, and then listen again to something else that he's going to say. But he starts with uh, talking about these false gods in verses 1 and 2. He says, Bell bows down, Nebo stoops, their idols are on beasts, uh, the things uh, you carry are born as burdens on weary beasts. So there's, there's these idols, they're being carried by animals, but then in verse 2 they stoop, they bow down together, uh, they, the idols, cannot save, or wait, no, the animals cannot save the burden, but they go into captivity. And so there's this, this weird thing happening in verses 1 and 2. And we need a little bit of background information to understand what it is that Isaiah is talking about. Uh, Bel is another name for, for Marduk, who is the god of Babylon. Like the, the, the chief god of Babylon is Marduk. His other name is Bel. And so he's one of the guys. Nebo is Marduk's son. And so these are the kind of main gods of Babylon. And every year uh, at the new year, there was this event in Babylon where they would take their two gods and they would lead them in a procession from this temple outside the city into this shrine in the city. It's like the most significant religious event that happened in Babylon. And so these, these two idols are being led in procession, probably on animals. And in Isaiah's vision, as he's prophesying, he sees this happening, but something's different this time. This time, instead of the animals making it all the way to the shrine in Babylon, they trip, they fall, they get tired from carrying these two idols, because presumably they were heavy. And so the, the beasts get weary, they fall down, uh, and the idols, instead of making it into the shrine like they did every other year, this time they're taken in captivity. And so it's probably tied into uh, what he was talking about last week with Cyrus going to conquer Babylon, what he's going to talk about next week with Babylon going to fall. So there's something that's going to happen in Babylon that's going to cause these two gods that they worship to fall down. Um, but the main thing that he's drawing out, the main difference is uh, revolving around the word carry and burden. And so as we read through, you probably noticed that there was that contrast happening between these gods who are carried by animals. They're a burden to the animals. The animals get weary as they carry them. But then in verse 3, he moves to talk about God. He calls the people to listen. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel. These are the people that still trust in God that are left after the judgment. He's calling them to listen, and then he's going to describe them. The people who have been born, that's with an E on the end, by me from before your birth, carried from the womb, even to your old age I am he, and to gray hairs I will carry you. I have made and I will bear, I will carry and I will save. The difference here that he's stressing is the difference between works and grace, right? The, the false gods have to be carried by someone else. They have to be born. They, they weary. They weigh down the people that worship them. But God carries his people. He says, from, from your birth 
all the way to old age, all the way to gray hairs. I carry you, and I will carry you. I've made you, I will bear you, I will carry, and I will save. This is the most significant difference between God and idols. It's not just that he can declare the things yet to come, and they can't. It's not just that he's actually God, and they're just a statue. But it's that he gives grace to his people. He does things for us that we can't do for ourselves, rather than us having to do something for him that he can't do for himself. Right? We don't have to put him in a place. We don't have to carry him from one temple to another temple. He's already there, and he doesn't need us to do that for him. He has made us, and he graciously promises to bear and carry us from, uh, our, for our entire lives. Because he's the one, the, the only one, who can abundantly give us the grace that we need. Idols can't do that. Which is why he leads into his next question, verse 5. He says, to whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we may be alike? In light of this contrast, in light of this significant difference between Bel and Nebo and God, who are we going to compare him to? And the answer to the question, just like it has been when he's asked it before in Isaiah, is there's no one for us to compare him to. Right? There was no one before he made this new point about this difference between grace and works, between God and idols. Now there should be even less options for us to compare him to. But we know that that's not the answer that the people give. The answer the people give is in verse 6. Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh out silver and scales are getting ready to buy something. They hire a goldsmith and he makes it into a god. Then they fall down and worship. They lift it to their shoulders, they carry it, they set it in its place, and it stands there. It cannot move from its place. If one cries to it, it does not answer or save him from his trouble. This is the answer that the Babylons give. This is the answer that God's people have given in the past. Who are they going to compare God to? They're going to compare him to an idol. They're going to make something and pretend that that's him. Obviously, that's ridiculous, which is why Isaiah describes it the way he does. Right? It, it cannot move. They, they put it up on their shelf, and then their God's on a shelf. If they take their God and they put it in a cabinet, then their God's in a cabinet. It cannot move. It can't do anything. If they, they fall down, they need help. They, they're, they're crying out to this God. This God can't do anything. It can't hear. And even if it could hear, it can't move. So it cannot save them. So he calls them in verse 8, remember this. Right? Pay attention to these things. Understand them. Remember them and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. He's reminding them that they used to be people that trusted in false gods. So remember those things. Don't trust them anymore. Why? For I am God, there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. So he's calling them to remember the truth that he's the one and only God. And why do they remember the truth? Because he's the one and only God. It, it's a circle. Remember these things. What do we remember? That God is the only God. Why do we remember that? Because God is the only God. And the reason why it's okay that it's a circle is because it's true. Right? If something is true, why should we remember it? Because it's true. That's something that we shouldn't forget because it's important enough to remember. He wants them to remember that he's God because he is God. Because there's no other one for them to remember. He describes more of his 
uh, uniqueness in verse 10. He declares the end from the beginning and from ancient things not yet done. So this is the kind of old theme that Isaiah has brought up again and again, that God can declare the things not yet to come. Idols obviously can't do that. He describes how he does that, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. He's going to accomplish his purpose by, verse 11, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. That's Cyrus. That's who Daniel talked about last week. God's going to use him to accomplish his purpose in bringing down Babylon, which he's going to talk about next week. Uh, He has spoken... He will bring it to pass. He's purposed and he will do it. God is putting his very character on the line with these things. Right? When God says that he will do something, it's not just a promise. It's more than a promise because if God breaks his promise, then he lies. And if he lies, then he's not God. Which should be hugely encouraging to us as we think about all the promises in the Bible to God's people. God has to keep those. And He will keep those because of who He is. He can't not keep them. He has spoken and He will bring it to pass. All of it. Which is why Paul can say all the promises of God find their yes in Christ even though we're waiting for some of them to be fulfilled. Because God said that He will do it, so He's going to do it. He calls them to listen again in verse 12. Says, listen to me, you stubborn of heart, you who are far from righteousness. So he calls them to listen uh, for the third time. Right? Listen, remember, listen. This time he's reminding them about who they are. Listen, you stubborn of heart, you who are far from righteousness. This describes everybody apart from God's work in them. Right? Apart from God doing something in us, that's who we are. We're, we're stubborn of heart, and we're far from righteousness. And, and let's be honest. Even with God's work in us, that's who we are sometimes. right? We can very easily be stubborn of heart. Uh, and if you can't admit that to yourself, you're lying. Um, we do things that are far from righteousness, uh, even though God has intervened in us. But that's who we are apart from. From him. We are without hope. We can't do anything to change our stubbornness of heart. We can't do anything to move ourselves from being far from righteousness to being close to righteousness. That takes something for God to do. So after he reminds them about who they are in verse 13, he reminds them about who he is by telling them what he's going to do. Verse 13, he says, I bring near my righteousness. It is not far off, and my salvation will not delay. I will put my salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. So immediately after telling them that they're far from righteousness, he tells them, I'm going to bring mine near to you. I'm going to put my salvation in Zion. It's not going to delay. He's going to do something in Jerusalem to save his people, to bring his righteousness near. And if you've read the New Testament, you know what that is. Right? He sends his son to Jerusalem, to die on the cross, to bring His righteousness to His people. Because in Christ, we go from being far from righteousness to being made right. 
That's, that's the only option for us who are stubborn of heart and far from righteousness, for God to move towards us. Which is, again, the reason why it's important that he's not a false god. Because he can move toward us. He can send his son to Jerusalem. He can send him to the cross. He can empower him to live the life that only he could live in our place. He can empower him to die the death in our place, paying the penalty for all of our sins. Right? Our, righteousness, our, our, our unrighteousness doesn't just go away. It's placed on Christ. And he pays the penalty for all of it. And then God takes Christ's righteousness and gives it to us. He counts it on our behalf when we trust in him. That's how he moves us from being unrighteous to righteous. He does that to save his people. And the, the end of verse 13 is really what was confusing to me at first. Uh, he said, I will put salvation in Zion and in Jerusalem for Israel my glory. I was expecting it just to say, for my glory. Right? Like God's going to do this thing for his glory. Like for his name, for his fame. But he says, I'm going to do it for my people, my glory. So God uh, cares for his people to such a degree that they're almost the same as his reputation. And he, he's describing his people, that's, that's us if we've trusted in Christ, as his glory, what he glories in, what he delights in. Um, God is saving his people for his name's sake, but also because he cares for us. Also because he delights in us. Also because he, he made us and he promised to bear and carry us. He gives grace. And him being a gracious God is the most significant difference between who he is and any other false God, any other option we might have to worship other than him. As we celebrate the Lord's Supper today, I would encourage you just to spend time thinking about those last two verses, right? These commands to, to listen, remember, and listen. Um, for them, they're listening and remember these things as they're looking to what's going to happen. We get to actually remember that God has brought his righteousness near. We get to remember that he has put his salvation in Jerusalem, that he did send his son. That Jesus did die in our place. As we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we're celebrating what he's already done. Even as we're waiting for the things he hasn't done yet. And so as we celebrate the Lord's Supper today, I would encourage you, first of all, to ask the Holy Spirit to show you the ways in which you are still stubborn of heart and far from righteousness. And that you would confess those things. Um, that you would ask him to empower you to walk in obedience in ways that you're not. Knowing that confession doesn't cost us anything. Admitting that we're still broken doesn't cost us anything because Christ has already paid for it. Right? We're, we're already righteous in him. Us admitting our still unrighteousness is just God sanctifying us. It's just God growing us in our faith. So it can um, confess those things. Um, and then spend time thinking about the fact that he has brought his righteousness near to you, even though you don't deserve it, even though we can't ever do anything to deserve it, even though we do nothing 
He has done all of it for us. Um, and then whenever you're ready, come forward and celebrate the Lord's Supper. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a gracious God. That you are the, the only God and the only gracious God. We thank you that we don't need to do anything to, to make you God that you already are, that you bear us, that you carry us, that, that you're not a burden to us, and that you bear us even though we are a burden to you. I thank you that even though we, we were and we are still in some ways far from righteousness, and we were and and are still in some ways stubborn of heart, that you sent Jesus. You sent him to live the life that we couldn't live, to die in our place, paying the penalty that we should have paid for our unrighteousness. And that he bore all of it on the cross. And that when we trust in him, in Him alone for salvation, you count His righteous life for us. That you bring your righteousness near to us. I pray that as we celebrate the Lord's Supper this morning, as we continue in our service, that you would help us to remember what Christ has done you would remind us of his sacrifice. You would enable us and empower us to worship you rightly because of who you are and what you've done and because of what you will do for your people. Jesus, we thank you for your sacrifice on our behalf, that, that you did for us what we could never do for ourselves. In your name we pray.